there's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Hello and welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. This is a show about the creators of three world-renowned blocks in Beverly Hills, and that includes the high style on the road. Well, Rodeo Drive is a fashion street. All the great design houses are on Rodeo Drive. And along with that comes jewelry, watches, and cars. Bruce Meyer is founder of the Rodeo Drive Concours d'Elegance. Car enthusiasts come to Rodeo Drive from all over the world. Some people drive their cars on Rodeo Drive, like the comedian and car collector Jay Leno. I like any sort of mechanical thing that rolls, explodes, and makes noise, or watches, steam engines, motorcycles, cars, anything like that. Some of them come to check out the fancy cars cruising the three blocks, like Supercar Blondie. I am here again with the most incredible car. <laughs> Look at it. This is the Tachyon Razor. And I'm about to take this baby down Rodeo Drive. Some display their cars at the Concorde d'Elegance or in front of the ultra-luxury stores that line Rodeo Drive. Parked outside the House of Bijan, you can see a Bijan yellow Aston Martin DBS Superleggera. On this show, you'll hear from Jay Leno about his passion for collecting and fixing cars. We'll also talk to Bruce Meyer and Marek Reichman. He is Chief Creative Officer and Studio Head at Aston Martin. He'll let us in on the new wheels in No Time to Die, the 25th James Bond film, which receives its world premiere in November. The Bond car is a character within the movie, and it is as well recognized as Q and Money Penny, and arguably as 007 himself, you know, or herself, or herself in the future. It has become synonymous, really, with the spy and the right tool to do the right job. We'll meet the car geeks after we check in with Kathy Gohari. She's vice president of the Rodeo Drive Committee and Valentino's director of client engagement. She says business is picking back up and retailers are looking ahead. New merchandise is coming in daily into the stores. This is our high season. Um, you know, most of the European brands right now, the employees take a few weeks off for vacation. So what they do is they produce as much new merchandise as possible and they push it out and send it out before they go on vacation. Is there anything you're particularly excited about at Valentino? I have to tell you, I obviously am aging myself. 80s was my decade, and it is back with a vengeance. Color, nothing minimalistic about these collections this season. So bring it on. I'm happy. Me too. So, Kathy, we're looking at Rodeo Drive's car culture and sort of the cult of the luxury automobile. Can you talk to us about Rodeo Drive's unique car culture and what makes it special? Sure. Rodeo Drive was the main uh, pathway of a, a brittle path where families, even back in 1912, 
were gallivanting down Rodeo Drive on a Sunday afternoon with their wives and their kids on horses. It just happened to be the place to be even back then. For some reason, this has started, you know, many, many, many decades ago. And today, the horses have transferred into luxury sport cars. Um, there is not a single, I'm not even going to say a single day, there's not a single hour where you are going to miss seeing some fabulous car go by. And even now, you know, it's really interesting. We have all different um, levels of stay-at-home mandates today. Some have eased it out to a certain extent, but you have to realize when you're in your car, that's like an extension of your home. You're still with yourself. So you have the luxury of cruising, basically taking your home on the road for a short period of time. And part of your identity, in some ways, with the luxury car, it's almost like another accessory, like a watch or a handbag. Absolutely. Many times on the weekends, we see some of our regular clients who have even weekend cars, right? They're special cars where they get to enjoy their uh, downtime with. And sometimes even their outfits match the car. And yes, because the interior of a car, the upholstery has always been for a luxury car, so important. Often it's custom. Yes, and custom to the extremes. We've seen everything from um, crystal-studded license plates to velvet-covered skin of the entire car. And there are a lot of movies that have been filmed on Rodeo Drive. All the time, there are requests from the city for permitting applications for cars to go up and down. Usually, they do it earlier in the mornings or late at night so that the traffic is less impacted. But it is wonderful to always see some sort of a special car come down the street with a camera attached to the hood. Mm -hmm. And you just have to wait to see what screen and what movie that ends up on. Are there any regulars in terms of cars Oh, absolutely. There are definitely people who won't um, think twice about finishing off their week by coming up and down Rodeo Drive. We also see, I mean, you know, one of our most favorite car collectors who is often in the city is Jay Leno. He has this array of magnificent antique cars and Every week, he is extremely, extremely um, open and very gracious to everybody who honks at him. Most of his cars are convertible, so you can see him coming from a mile away. Kathy Gohari, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Those are the mating calls from some of Jay Leno's cars. He talks about them and meets other car fanatics on his weekly CNBC show, Jay Leno's Garage. The longtime talk show host and comedian is beloved in the car collecting community. Bruce Meyer, founder of the Rodeo Drive Concours d'Elegance, explains why. Jay is an absolute enthusiast collector. I mean, you know, somebody the other day was talking about people that, you know, want to have a Ferrari because they love the status of a Ferrari. And Jay is, he is in it for all the right reasons. He understands cars. He works on cars. He never buys a car because it's the car to have or, you know, he just defines 
what's good about our hobby. Jay Leno owns 191 cars, 168 motorbikes. He works on them by day. At night, he still does stand-up. I asked him to tell us what's in his illustrious garage. Well, you'd see a lot of cars and motorcycles. I like any sort of mechanical thing that rolls, explodes, and makes noise, or uh, watches, steam engines, motorcycles, cars, anything like that. Preferably early industrial age in America, late 1800s to about 1920 is sort of one of my favorite eras. But I have modern stuff too, supercars and things like that. So a little bit of everything. Why do the early automobiles and motorcycles interest you so much? Well, I think when you're interested in something, you always want to know what came before that. What came before that? The fun thing about automotive archaeology is... You don't, you don't have to go back much more than 150 years. You know, if you're interested in Egyptian artifacts, okay, now you're talking thousands of years and you've got to go to Egypt. You know, here you go to Detroit and you find uh, books and relevant materials and even relatives and friends of people who literally started the age here in, in, in the United States, who started the assembly lines and, you know, that type of thing, whether it's the Ford family or the General Motors people or any other type of stuff. So um, I, I enjoy the history. I like the history of transportation. I find it fascinating. You know, steam ran America from, oh, the early 1800s to about 1911. And then the internal combustion came in about 1911. That went for 100 years. And now we're entering the electric age, you know. I think a child born today will probably never have driven in a, a gas-powered car by the time they're 20 years old. What about self-driving cars? Well, self-driving is one of those terms that's sort of a misnomer. You know, it's the idea of you have a bottle of scotch and you jump in the back seat and the car takes you somewhere. That's, that's not going to happen. I mean, self-driving really should be called driver assist. You know, power steering was a great help. Power brakes were a great help. Warning signals, you know, warning radar. Um, I, I don't think you'll see it just for liability reasons for a long time. The, I think someone will always have to be behind the wheel taking charge. Uh, airplanes, for example, are self-flying almost 100%, except for the takeoff and the landing, then the pilot jumps in. But nobody, I think, would ever get on a plane that didn't didn't have any kind of pilot or human in the cockpit, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think totally self-driving is a way off. I, I think it might work for delivery. Th you know, it works until a self-driving car accidentally hits a school bus full of nuns, and then that's pretty much the end of it. When did you start collecting, and why did you start collecting? Well, I never thought of myself as a collector. I just bought things that I like, and I just never <laughs> I never sold anything. What did you buy first? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, almost every vehicle I have uh, is old. I, I've got some modern cars, too. But, you know, the funny thing about old cars is you can find a, a Model T from 1915, drag it home, and probably get it running within two or three minutes, literally. I mean, I have. Uh, whereas if you found a car from the 90s, that hadn't been run in 30 years. Oh, my God, there's a lot of work there. There's electronics and all types of things. So there's a simplicity to it. I mean, people today don't even know how to change a tire. 
When did you start collecting, and what did you collect first? Well, I guess my first real collector car was a 32 Packard I bought from uh, Phil Hill, the famous race car driver. Uh, so that would be the first collector car. That was a 1932 Packard Twin 6. So, uh, And then it's sort of <laughs> built from there, I guess. What motivates you to acquire a car for your collection? It should be of technical and historical interest. It should be pleasing to look at. And it should be fun to drive. If it has those three qualifications, then even if it goes down in value, I still like it. I, I've never bought a car as an investment. I bought it because of what I like. Because if it, if it turns out to be worthless, what well, doesn't matter? I still like it. I'm not going to sell it. You know, I know a lot of people. That I, I bought one of these, and then the price went down. Well, now they hate themselves for buying it because they never liked it in the first place, and they only bought it as an investment. What kind of satisfaction does performing the work on your cars give you? Like, why do you do it? Well, as someone who works in the entertainment industry, uh, some people think you're talented, some people think you're not, and they're both correct. <laughs> because, well, they are. If, if you don't make someone laugh to them, you're not funny. Someone else might say, oh, I think he's hysterical. Oh, well, thank you very much. But when you take something that's broken and you fix it, no one can tell you it's not running. When you call people and go, remember the engine that was broken? Look, okay, no one can say it's not running. Okay, it's running. There you go. You fixed it. Plus, I, I think I always go that adage that the heart is healthiest when the head and the hands work together. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, at night I work with my head and do it, and then at the day I like to work with my hands. So your brain takes a rest, and then you do mechanical things, and then you, you you go out and tell jokes and work on stage at night. You know, how did restoring cars change your approach to collecting? Well, you realize how hard it is. You know, my favorite thing is an auction say, may need some slight reconditioning. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, thank you very much. That could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Oh, my God. You know, I always like to buy something that's at least running. I bought plenty of cars that don't run, of course, but uh, at, at least I, if it's running, I know all the pieces are there and I can fix what needs to be fixed. Uh, the average car has 10,000 pieces in it. And if someone says, it's 10% less still to be done. Well, that's a 1,000 parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a 1,000 parts that are missing. Yeah. Do you buy cars from, say, an Instagram post? Do you look at Instagram? No, no. Well, you don't really buy anything from a picture. Some people do. Uh, yeah, and then they, yeah, then they get divorced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you need to see it. You, you know, I mean, that's just seems like common sense. You need to drive it. You can see if it's been damaged, see if it's even the same vehicle you looked at, you know. What is your trophy? Well, like McLaren F1, I guess, if, if one was going to go with the most valuable car. Um, a lot of people think, oh, it's a waste of money investing in cars. You know, I always see uh, Dennis, um, Mr. Wonderful. He collects wine. He's all collecting cars. is stupid there. But, you know, I, I bought my McLaren F1 in 98, I paid $800,000 for it. People thought, oh, you're crazy. And the last offer I got was $17.5 million, and Jeez. one just sold for twenty. So same thing with Bugatti or any of those. Like I say, if you buy what you like and you're reasonably knowledgeable, hopefully other people will like it. It costs just as much money to restore a valuable car as it does a worthless car. So if you start with something that's got a reasonable amount of value, there's a good chance it'll go up, you know. Do you think... Values will take a hit during the pandemic? No, because uh, 
the best stuff will always be valuable. I mean, there's no point at which uh, a Leonardo da Vinci painting or sketch would ever go down in value. But wannabes and lookalikes and tributes and all that stuff, those are the ones that, that suffer, that fall by the wayside. I mean, you see it already. The auctions are down. I mean, everything is, is across the boards. And prices have dropped a little bit, but not on the really high-end stuff. The high-end stuff is still pretty expensive. You know, it's a weird place we're in now when Bugatti can sell Chirons at $5 million a piece and, and can barely meet the demand. So you go, hmm, something's happening and something's got to give. What gives you car envy? That's a Rodeo Drive question. What makes you do a double take and think, I need that? Oh, well, I always say, always be happy with what you have. Come on. Just, just make sure you have enough. You know, it's usually something, it's interesting because you say to yourself, do I like this because of some past connection or do I like it merely for its intrinsic uh, beauty or whatever? Like when I was a kid, I worked at a Mercedes-Benz dealer and there was a car called the Mercedes-Benz 6.3. It was a four-door sedan, but it had the big engine and it. It was, a, it was the first really powerful car for the American market that Mercedes uh, sold. And it was like $14,000 when a Ford Galaxy was like $3,800. And I used to have to do new car prep, polish them up and wash them and get them ready for the customers. I always thought, oh, one day, man, I'm going to get one of those. And I, I found one, and it had over 300,000 miles on it when I got it, and I still have it. And I just enjoy driving. And when I get behind the wheel, I smile. I go, well, am I smiling because... It's the workmanship, or is it because it takes me back to a time when I was a kid and I was broke and this was one of those unobtainable things? So I don't know whether it's the nostalgia or it's the actual engineering. It just takes you back to a different time, I suppose. And you love driving. I do like driving. Doing two things at once, like to me, eating and moving, oh, that was the greatest thing. <laughs> be in a moving car and eating. So like I'm, ooh, I'm moving and eating at the same time. I remember one time I was uh, delivering a car. It was a Rolls Royce. I picked it up because I worked at a dealer. And I stopped at McDonald's, and I got a hamburger. And I was opened the hamburger bun, and I was putting ketchup on the hamburger. And not paying attention, I bumped the car in front of me, and the hamburger hit me in the face. And the guy jumps out. What are you doing? I got okay, now I've got ketchup all over my face. And the guy goes, oh, my God, are you okay? I go, what? Yeah, I'm fine. He goes, you all right? Lie down. I go, why? What? And I realized, oh, so not, I said, that's not the blood, it's ketchup. He goes, ketchup? What do you mean it's ketchup? And then the guy starts yelling at me. <laughs> I went, oh, uh, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> Jay Leno, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Oh, no, no Rodeo Drive stories? Oh, I'll tell you one Rodeo Drive story. <laughs> Tell my, me, please. Oh, this, this is like 25 years ago. Give it to me. My mom and dad. My dad wants to see Rodeo Drive. Okay, Pop. I said, Pop, it's pretty expensive. No, no, it's, I'm sure it'd be fine. So, okay. So we're walking out Rodeo Drive. My dad sees a store that has, I have a nephew, Richard. My dad says, hey, let's go in and get a T-shirt for Richard. I go, Dad, don't buy a T-shirt on Rodeo Drive. No, I'm just going to get a T-shirt. I said, all right. So I'm standing there, and I hear in the store, 
$75. Kind of damn t-shirt is worth $75. You just scream at the guy. Go, Pop. That, that, seven, that's ridiculous. You know, this is when t-shirts were like nine ninety five. you know. I go, Pop, is a day old drive. It's a, it's a damn t-shirt. I got a, got a picture of some rock star that's $75. I go, Pop, she goes, thank you, sir. Thank you. They're like, take my, I got my dad out of the store. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Jay Leno, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks. Nice talking to you. So that was Jay Leno, comedian, car collector, and regular cruiser on Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. The annual Rodeo Drive Concours d'Elegance has become a Father's Day tradition. It's free open to the public, and draws throngs of classic and luxury car enthusiasts, including Jay Leno. This show of collectible cars has become one of the biggest events on the street. But it wasn't always that way. Bruce Meyer is a Beverly Hills businessman. His family owns Geary's Beverly Hills and the Geary's Rolex Boutique on Rodeo Drive. He also co-founded the Peterson Automotive Museum on Wilshire Boulevard. Bruce has loved motorbikes and cars since childhood. 30 years ago, he and a group of fellow gearheads came up with the idea for the Concours d'Elegance. In the early 90s, Beverly Hills had a fire truck uh, that they had no money to restore, but it was an original Beverly Hills fire truck. So a group of us got together and thought, we, we should put together a car show or do something and we'll restore that antique fire truck. And that's really how the whole car show thing got started in Beverly Hills. We started it, it, it started originally at, at El Rodeo, then we moved it to Beverly Hills High School. And then... Um, Along came Ferrari, and they wanted to debut a car on Rodeo Drive, and they came to me and asked if I could help do that. So um, I, I kind of produced that show for them. And we closed the street off. We filled it with Ferraris, and it was, it was very exciting, and it was very successful. So with that, we thought, my gosh, you know, Rodeo Drive is the perfect place to do a car show. And we, we moved it to Father's Day, and now it's just become the largest – single-day event in Beverly Hills. Um, Beverly Hills, with their technology, evidently has ways of counting people on the street. And at our last show, year before this, they counted 44,000 people. Wow. And of course, this year we were we didn't have a show, unfortunately, but we had the, probably the best show we'd ever planned and ready to go. I and mean, we had to cancel it at the last minute. What was planned as this year's theme of Concours? Sure, this year was going to be hypercars. So you an automobile, then you start with a, 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 a performance automobile, and then you start with a, then you go to a supercar, and then you go to a hypercar, which just takes the automobile to the next level of performance. So we had cars coming from all over the world, the Koenigsegg, the Huayra, Lamborghinis, Bugattis. We had, we had almost every manufacturer sending over their most extreme performance cars, which we call hypercars, which would have just blown away the young people. Yeah. And this being 2020, we call it a vision, you know, 2020 vision. We were doing 2020 
a vision into the future. So these were all future hyper, you know, lunar type cars. So that was going to be this year and it was absolutely going to be spectacular. But we're going to, we'll move a lot of that theme on till next year. So God willing, next June we'll be, you know, we'll have this COVID and Let's hope. Whatever else holds us back under control. Yeah. Can you talk to us about how the Concours evolved after the first uh, iteration on Rodeo Drive with Ferrari? How did it change over the years? Well, I remember the Rodeo Drive committee, at the very first, they didn't embrace it because they, a lot of the store owners felt that there were just a lot of people that weren't particularly interested in what they were offering fashion-wise, and it just kind of clogged the street and closed it for a day. But later on, as we as it grew and, and more people came and, 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 and the stores stayed open and they did business, it, it, it just took a life of its own, and, and, and we got great press internationally because we, we've, we've debuted some fabulous cars on Rodeo Drive. Cars are such a part of Hollywood. Um, do, you, do you have a lot of Hollywood moguls tripping around examining the cars? You know, we, we get a lot of people, a lot of people kind of come incognito, come early and leave early, and you, you don't even know that they're come and gone. But, I mean, obviously the cars have been a big part of Hollywood. You know, I, 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 I bought Clark Gable's Mercedes from his widow. I bought it in 1981. So was it Case Breckles? Case Breckles, that's right. Really? Yep. I had spent six years restoring an old Mercedes. And this gentleman came up to me and said, you know, Clark Gable had one of these cars. And I said, yes, I know that. He said, you know, his widow still owns that car. This was in, in like the late, like, I want to say 79 maybe. And I'm going to myself, oh, I can't believe she would still have that car. Now, Case Breckles was a customer of Geary's. So I went right back to our you know, accounting department, got her home number, called her and said, Kay, do you, do you still have Clark's car? She said, oh, yes. You know, it was his favorite car. And, and she explained that she was pregnant with John Clark Gable and she was going to save it for him, you know, save the car for him. So I said, I'd love to see it. So I went out there and here was this car all wrapped in blankets, all original. It was a 1956 Mercedes 300 SC Cabriolet which in its day was the most expensive car you could buy. It was about $17,000 in, in the mid-50s when a, wow. a Cadillac was probably 5000 and a Rolls-Royce was 10000 This was the most expensive car you could buy. They made they made 48 of these cars, and, and Errol Flynn had one, and Gary Cooper and Bing Crosby. This was the status car of the period. So I looked at this car, and I just couldn't believe it. So... I stayed in touch with Kay, calling her every year, you know, to see if she was ready to sell it and, you know, admiring the car. And finally, in 1981, I was able to buy the car. And um, so I bought it. And now my son, I have a 48-year-old son and a 45-year-old son. They bring their friends by and they have no idea who Clark Gable was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I paid a big premium because for me, Clark Gable was the king, you know, and. I put his car, you know, I've had it on display many times. I drive it. It's my wife's favorite car, and we love the car. You know, Rodeo Drive has a car culture of its very own. Can you describe Rodeo Drive's car culture for, say, someone who's never experienced it? Sure. Rodeo Drive is a fashion street. So all the latest fashions from all the great design houses are on Rodeo Drive. And along with that comes jewelry, watches, 
and cars. People that get new cars always love driving down Rodeo Drive and showing off their cars. Bijan had parked his Bugatti and his his Rolls and fancy cars in front of his shop. And so, you know, the, the automobile and on Rodeo Drive always seemed like, you know, the perfect combination, the perfect match, so to speak. And it is today. That was Bruce Meyer, co-founder of Rodeo Drive's Concours d'Elegance. You heard him just mention Bichon. The house of Bichon has always had a Bichon yellow car sitting out in front, as we learned from Bichon's son, Nicholas Bichon. And then, of course, now you see this parking spot with a yellow Bugatti or a Bichon yellow Rolls Royce. Or now we have a partnership with Aston Martin in England. So one of the cars is parked there. And you'll see a lot of people taking pictures of, of the cars. So that in its own is a very unusual thing to see, especially in front of this enormous uh, Bichon yellow plaster uh, Mediterranean boutique. Yes, the Bichon yellow car is currently a DBS Superleggera by Aston Martin, the iconic British luxury brand. The House of Bichon worked with Q by Aston Martin, the factory's personalization service, to create a Bichon edition DBS. It comes tricked out with soft alligator leather upholstery finishing, a sleek wood veneer trim, and the House of Bichon insignia. Now, all of you James Bond fans out there probably caught the mention of Q. That's the head of Q Branch, the fictional research and development division of the British Secret Service. In the 25th James Bond film, No Time to Die, set to be released in November, Ben Wishaw will reprise his role as Q. And you can expect Q to offer up some alluring new variants of Bond's famed Aston Martin. The man responsible for those models in real life is Marek Reichman. He is chief creative officer and studio head at Aston Martin. Reichman was born in Sheffield, South Yorkshire. He grew up in a family of car fanatics, and his works include the Rolls-Royce Phantom 7 and Lincoln's MKX. His first Aston Martin for 007 was for the 2006 Bond film Casino Royale with Daniel Craig at the wheel. Yeah, I mean, being the creator of the DBS for Casino Royale was was really special. We've had an amazing relationship with the Eon franchise, with Bond, you know, since 1964 and the DB5 Goldfinger. And we brought Bond back to an Aston Martin for Casino Royale. And it was an incredible journey. Obviously, you know, I'm the designer, yes. But to work on um, a movie, the entertainment industry, uh, a character which is globally recognized, be part of the, the fun, the enjoyment of making a movie. A movie is a very, very special thing. And DBS was the first. DBS then also appeared in Quantum of Solace. But I guess the pinnacle of doing all of that was Spectre, um, where we created DB10, which was the first time a car had been specifically designed for James Bond. 
And the way DB10 was announced was as part of the cast, as part of the crew. In fact, before Daniel was announced as the continuation of Bond, DB10 was shown. We only made 10 cars. We gave James Bond the moniker DB10. So we had a DB9 and we have a DB11. James Bond owns DB10. So that's how special it, does, it is for us as a brand. And for me, um, you know, that, that boy that used to look at my uncle renovating and building cars that boy comes out when I design a bond car it's just a lot of fun it's incredibly exciting and you know it's something that I have to pinch myself and say you know this is not just a job this is I have an amazing opportunity and and every day I feel honored to be part of this incredible historic brand yeah cultural heritage um db for those listeners that don't know could you explain what db stands for yeah, DB was was our owner of the business, David Brown. So David Brown created um, from the late 40s, early 50s, he started to generate the, the cars that would be recognized today with the DB moniker and actually used to sit on the badge, on, on the wing that sits on the front of the car and the back of the car. It actually used to say Aston Martin, David Brown. And, and obviously we've we've just taken on board the DB and we carry that as our heritage and nod to the past when David Brown owned the business. Listening to you discuss the relationship with Eon Productions that Aston Martin has cultivated since 1964, it seems as though the Aston Martin is actually a character in the Bond film, a character as iconic as Q, or Moneypenny for that matter. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, for sure, the, the Bond car is a character within the movie, and it is as well recognized as, as Q and Money Penny, and arguably as, as 007 himself, you know, or, <laughs> herself, or herself in the future. I mean, it, it's, it, it has become synonymous, really, with the spy and the right tool to do the right job. And, and I think if I look back to the movies, you know, that we've been part of and involved in and to the point now where when the car first appears on the screen the whole cinema or movie theater erupts into applause and cheers yeah so, i've done that a few times yeah everyone is waiting you know think think of the unveil of db5 um you know in skyfall think of the first appearance of d of the db10 inspector underground and bond looking at the car it, it is truly a character within the movie and it's a character within the movie because we design and create cars that have character they have a face they have a visual language that suggests you can it's not just an inanimate object it's an object that you can almost refer to by name and people do say i love my car i love my aston martin and i think that's an important part of what we create and why within the bond movie our cars become true characters bond 25 no time to die features four iconic aston martins from the past present and future can you give us a sneak preview of what we're going to see on screen yeah. I can give you a sneak preview of what you're going to see on the screen. Some incredibly exciting stunts. And the great thing about all of the Bond movies is that whenever you see uh, an action scene using the cars, they are real action scenes. They are um, cars that have been 
developed to drive at those speeds on screen and stunt drivers are driving them. So everything you see, they really are smoking the tires. They really are doing the donuts in, in the way that you see them on the movie. So you'll see through the different phases of Bond's, Bond's character in, in No Time to Die, the different cars that he uses. And, and in one of the scenes, it's, it's not Bond driving. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yes. Cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's all I can say. <laughs> so we've got the Aston Martin DB5, the V8 yeah. Vantage from the Living Daylights. Yeah. Can you tell us about the two new cars? Yeah, DBS Superleggera. So we have, yeah, of course, DB5. We've got the V8 from the 80s. And then we have the DBS Superleggera, which is a modern current car. And then a cameo role for a, a car we call Valhalla, which which appears in a very, very important scene. And maybe it sets the tone for the future. Um, but the DBS Superleggera is is not driven by Bond, but it's an important part of, of the story and how the car gets used and the projection of the, if you like, the character through that car is really, really important. And and for us that, you know, it's a car that you can go and see in a showroom, you can uh, you can experience and look at online, or, you know, if you're if you're fortunate enough, go and go and buy as well. The Valhalla is a supercar. It costs $1 million. It will be available in limited edition. Will it go on sale before the film or when the film comes out? No, it will be on. So Valhalla will be on sale after the movie is out and produced. Um, we obviously have been taking deposits on that car. It's a deposit-based um, program in, in terms of the volume. And it's it's just one of the greatest platforms to to portray your brand or to show a car don't forget how many eyeballs will actually get to see a bond movie and and obviously we can use the great channels provided through the franchise to show our our products and and have that wonderful believable relationship with with james bond himself can you tell us about what happens to the aston martins which are seen in the bond films yeah, if they survive, um, and obviously if you looked at Casino Royale, that the car um, in Casino did six and three quarter end over end turns, which is actually a, a world record for on-screen um, turnovers or rollovers of a car, if you like, that still exists. Uh, exists it exists in someone's collection because someone was so fascinated by owning the crashed car from the movie typically um eon would retain one or two of the cars and we retain one or two of the cars or they will go on um a bond tour so that the, the rest of the world can see some of the properties that actually happen um sadly some of them don't make it um through the movie because they're they're used as i say in those in those physical scenes and they're real cars that will get crashed and will get destroyed in in the makeup of the movie describe what separates an aston martin from the rest i think you know what separates an aston martin is we are a we're a 107 year old brand so in 107 years we have made approximately let's call it 95 to 100,000 cars so an Aston Martin is incredibly rare. Of those cars made, approximately 95% still exist. So we've made icon, icons that exist within 
people's collections. You know, we've made arguably one of the most iconic cars ever to be made, a DB5. And you might argue there are others, but one of the most recognized forms and shapes that exist. So A, you're getting something very, very rare. You're getting something, therefore, very, very exclusive. And it's very artisan as well. We, we hand build our cars. We hand assemble our cars now. With all the modern technologies, with all the modern construction methodologies, but at the end of the day, it's the hours spent dedicated to assembling our cars that makes us very, very special and very, very unique. Merrick Reichman, thank you for talking to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. It has been fascinating. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Merrick Reichman is Chief Creative Officer and Studio Head at Aston Martin. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. I look forward to sharing more Rodeo Drive stories with you on the next episode. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the City of Beverly Hills. It is written by Francis Anderton with editing and audio production by Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Mandul, Callie McConnell, and Guthrie McCarty-Vashon are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thanks for listening.